But we're going to start a new series. How many of you, Brian was kind of talking about it, have some New Year's resolutions that you've started? Anyone? A few of you? How many of you have New Year's resolutions that you've already failed at? <laughs> or how many of you have had a curveball show up in life already this year? We're six days in, and already this year you've had a curveball come where it, the year hasn't started how you want it to. I know for many of us, last year was a really hard year. And for me and my family and some others, we've already had some trials at the beginning of this year. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to start for the month of January and February. We're going to be looking at the book of James. And James, I'm really excited to be able to kick this off because James is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. James the Just is his name. And there's some objections when you read through. There's some people who would say maybe it wasn't him. The few objections that it has is that it was written in Greek and that the Greek was too polished for someone who had lived in Jerusalem in that area for their whole life. So that was one of the objections. The other is, is that nowhere in the book of James does it say, this is James and Jesus was my brother. But most scholars, as they've waded through, really think that James is the one. It's Jesus' brother who wrote this. So what a great book. What insight he must have had watching your older brother who becomes the Christ and all of that. So you just know that he's full of wisdom. Where we see James prominent is Acts 15. So he's meeting with Paul and Barnabas there, and James is basically, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this point. So he's got the authority. He's the one who's running the church there in Jerusalem, and they're deciding what do we do next to be able to go out to the Gentiles. Um, it's written much like Proverbs. So if you read Proverbs where there's different commands and it's kind of like that, James is another book in the New Testament, it's kind of the New Testament version of Proverbs, because that's the way that it's really written. There's 108 verses in all of James, and 50 of them tell us something to do. There's an imperative, there's an action, a command, do this. So not quite half, but almost half the book is him saying, please, move into action, which is part of what I really like about it, because it's very practical advice. Sometimes as I'm reading through, I just want someone to say, do this, because then the good little box checker in me goes, I did that. It feels pretty good. So that's a lot of how this is written. There's a lot of calls to action. Um, I'm really excited to look at this. So I'm going to pull it up. You guys can read along as I read it. We're going to start James 1, and we're going to go through verse 18. Take a drink before I get going. So it's this. Jesus, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, and he hits them hard. Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Creatures. So for those of you who don't know me, my name's Joel and I help lead the connection team here and I get to preach because Scott's down in the DR with the team. And I really need to pray because you guys don't need to hear from me about God's got an important message for my heart and also for you. So, Father, I thank you that you're here in this place. I thank you that you're with us, that you didn't stay far away, but you came and you met with us, and you saved us and brought us closer to you. Be with us during this time. Help us to learn how to trust you through trials, how to trust you through so many things in life. So we turn to you. Thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at five different things that we need to trust God through. As I read through that passage and I was unpacking it, really looking at, okay, what are the different themes? God, what do you have for us this morning? And I've been preparing this. The first is to trust God through steadfastness. And we see this in that verse two through four, by being steadfast. What I want to do is I want to start with the end of that portion, though. Kind of two through four, James says that, we are able to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here, who here wants to be perfect and complete, not lacking in, in anything? That's a good thing, right? Well, to get that, we've got to work our way backwards, because that's the goal. And we've got to work our way backwards. How do we do that? We do it through steadfastness. So I want to unpack what does that look like? Who are some of the different characters in the Bible who carried that quality of being steadfast? Because before the steadfastness comes the trials. And when the trials come and the waves come and the storm comes, can we hold on and be strong? Can we be there connected to God? That's what we want to look at this morning. Because when he says it in verse 2, like, how many of you, when you wake up to trials, the first thing is, I'm going to count this joy. Yeah, like, this is going to be awesome. I'm so excited. We've got to reverse our thinking a little bit. We've got to remember that when those trials come, it's an opportunity to connect with God, to hold true, to be anchored to him so that we can be steadfast. Because then when we're steadfast, and we're connected to God, we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But let's look at some of the characters in the Bible who were steadfast, right? The first one that came to my head as I was preparing was Joseph. Now, Joseph is from a very important line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel changed his name. His, one of his sons is Joseph. So, I mean, we're great-great-grandfather's Abraham, right? Like, Father Abraham. Like, he's closer. I've never met him, but he got to. So, here's Joseph, right? Joseph, for some reason, was Israel's favorite son. He wasn't the last-born son, but he was the favorite son. How many of you have seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat? It's a Broadway play, a famous one. You don't need to see it if you haven't. I shouldn't say it. Maybe some people really like it, um, but I thought it was... 
just different. So Joseph gets this coat from his dad. His coat makes it, he makes him this coat of all these different colors. His dad gives it to him and says, you're my favorite, which all the other brothers were not that excited about. Like, why do I not get to be your favorite? As parents, you're not supposed to have a favorite child. Now, many of us that have lots of kids know that they're all the same, and I love them all the exact same. And I'm not going to give any of them a coat of many colors because that would just cause fights. And, like, I think I'm a little smarter than that. But for some reason, he does this. Well, the brothers get really mad, so they decide to kill him. That's what you do as a brother, right? Like, dad's got a favorite. Let's kill him. So they're going to throw him in this pit and leave him for dead. One of the brothers, Reuben, decides, guys, let's not kill him, but let's pretend we kill him. So we're going to sell him. So there's some slave traders that come by, and they sell their brother into slavery. Not a great family. They take the coat, and they put goat's blood on it. They return it to the dad and say, Dad, I'm sorry, your favorite son is gone. And in the other room, they're all dancing like, Joseph's not going to be here anymore, right? Is he considering this joy? Is he counting it joy at this point? My brothers just sold me into slavery. So he goes to Egypt, and everything gets better, right? No, he gets thrown in jail for not doing anything wrong. He's falsely accused, gets thrown in jail. But the whole story of Joseph is he connecting to God and saying, God, even through these trials that are coming, that's the beauty of it. And God does restore the whole thing and restores the family, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story. But was he counting it joy? I hope he was, and I think that he was. I think we see it at different points. Was it hard? Yeah, it was hard, but it was. Um, some of you have heard, we posted on Facebook, the trial that we went through this week. Um, where do I start? Wednesday morning, we were, that's the morning of the mission trip. We had, the alarm went off at 2 in the morning to take the kids to go to the airport. So everybody that was on that trip, they just were all exhausted. So that's when the alarm was going off. And the night before, um, our daughter Rebecca had been sick. She had a cough. And for those of you that don't know, Rebecca, since she was three months old, has been predisposed to diabetes. Um, it's type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease where basically your body, your white blood cells, attack your pancreas and, and make it so that you can't produce insulin, which is a key to take the blood that's, the, the sugar that's in your blood and get it into your cells. So Rebecca and other type 1 don't have the ability to take that, to produce that insulin and move it in there. Well, Rebecca's never had any symptoms. Um, she has had the markers. So there's a group called Teddy, which is the Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young. And their whole mission is to try to figure out why are people getting type 1 diabetes? Why does this happen? Are there different factors that happen? Like, was it something in the home? Was it something they ate? Was it like, what was it? So she's been in this study for 10 years, 11 years. So we've known for a long time, like there's a good chance that she's going to end up with this, but she's never had any of the markers. There's some tests they can do that test like a three-month span of your blood to see how the blood sugar levels are, and hers have always been very normal. Um, so we're getting ready for the trip. In the back of Alicia's mind, something says, she's been sick, we should test her. And we hadn't tested her blood at home since like July. They did a test in October um, for the, one of the quarterly visits she went into, and everything was fine. Um, her A1C was... Uh, 5.7 or 5.8, and 6 is the allowable, so everything seemed okay. Um, but Alicia just thought, let me just test, just in case. So she tests the blood sugar. This is 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, so we're all trying to be in bed early because we've got to get up early. 
and the test comes back and her blood sugar level is over 400. And for the nurses or people who know, that's extremely high, dangerously high. Um, someone with a normal functioning pancreas is anywhere from 70 to 120 is kind of the range. So she's extremely high. So Alicia thinks, oh, the meter's broken. So she says, go wash your hands. We're going to test again because that's our natural. Like, there's no way this is right. So we come and test again. She's still in the upper 300s. So we said, go to bed, freaking out inside. Like, what does this mean? Go to bed. We'll test again in the morning because because she was sick and because there's hormones, there could be, it could have just been a false high. So we go to test it in the morning. She's still around 300. So I'm just, in, in my own way, starting to freak out. Like, what do we do? Um, I called Mark, um, Pastor Mark, whose daughter has type 1 diabetes. They're, they're on the trip. They're down there. So I was going to meet him at the airport and kind of talk through it with him, trying to get some wisdom from him. Is this something we should do? Alicia got on the phone with the nurse line. And the doctor said, listen, if the trip was shorter, maybe, but a six-day trip to be gone when she's already this elevated, you have no idea the, the disastrous consequences that could happen. She could crash. She could end up in a coma. She could end up in the hospital down in the Dominican Republic. So we're thinking, oh, maybe she shouldn't go. So we get to the, the airport. We test her again, and she's still really high. And the whole way to the airport, I'm just praying with my family, like, God, Rebecca was with us because I, in my heart, still wanted to send her. Um, only 11, but she raised $100 total worth of the trip. We asked all the kids to raise different amounts. So she worked hard doing some babysitting, doing other odd jobs. She had put her own money into this and months worth of planning and, and training. And the trial came. And I had to look at my daughter at the airport and say, I'm sorry, you can't go. And she welled up in tears. She was devastated. This thing that she wanted to be with her brothers and sisters. And everyone on the trip kept coming over and consoling her, which was beautiful and was heartbreaking because it just made her cry even more. And I had to tell my 11-year-old, I'm sorry, but you don't get to go. And I'm so grateful that we didn't send her because we went to the doctor that day and we spent the next several days at this center that's testing these diabetes kids. We've learned so much, but we've had to give her insulin shots five times a day since then to keep her regulated, to keep her healthy. A hundred years ago, she may have died. So in the middle of it all, I have been able to count it joy, but there's been moments of just pain and anger at the airport. I was so mad. I was so angry at the Lord. Why couldn't this have happened three weeks ago or three weeks later? Why did it have to happen now? But I have to trust that God was in control, that he didn't want her to get sick while she was down there because then I don't know what would have happened. So trials are real. Let's not hide from that. Pretend, put on this happy face. That's one of the things we've been working with, with Rebecca with, is it's allowed, you're okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. You're okay to feel emotions around this. You don't just have to pretend like everything's okay. We've been trying to give her that grace to be able to walk through it. Now, how has she responded? She's amazing. She gets the little meter. You have to test your blood. So you have to put a, it's like a dart thing that goes into your finger, and she's the one who pushes it, and then she tests her blood. And we're not asking her to do any of it, but she's really owning it. And it's been really neat to see her response later as she's really owned this. I'm grateful for the whole Teddy study that we've known for 11 years that this was a possibility. So what's the trial that God is calling you to be steadfast in this morning? What's heavy on your heart where you're just being worn out by this trial? Is it school? 
Maybe school's really hard. I've just been on break, but maybe that's painful. Or a current job. Maybe you have a job that you hate. Or is it your marriage? For some of us, maybe our marriages are really hard right now. And God's calling us to that steadfastness, not on our own, but to meet with him. Are we willing to be sad enough or angry enough or ashamed enough at the things that we've done to invite God in and say, God, be with me through this trial? And throughout these, I want to really look at Jesus. I want to look and see what Jesus said in the scripture around these five things. So what did Jesus look like with steadfastness? I find it in Hebrews 12, 2. What an amazing passage of scripture. If you've never heard this before, be ready. It says, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, he's counting it joy, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How could there be joy with the cross? It's because he saw the bigger picture. He saw the end game. He was able to pull himself out of his immediate situation. And even then, it was a trial for him. God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But no, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame of it, where God the Father looked away for the first time. But where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? We can look beyond our current trials. Look at the bigger picture. God has won Rebecca doesn't have a death sentence. It's going to be a lot of work the rest of her life. She's going to have to take insulin the rest of her life. But it's not a death sentence. And even if it was, she would just get to be with Jesus, right? Steadfastness. The second thing that I want to look at is how do we trust God through wisdom? In verses 5 through 8, he talks about if anyone's lacking wisdom, let him ask God who's going to give it generously. So if we want to look at wisdom, we also need to look at the wisest person in all of Scripture. So I looked at Solomon, was trying to come up with some clever things, and I really had to go here just because I think it's ironic. So Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which basically just means nothing matters. Like, it's all vain. It doesn't matter. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and then it goes around to the north, around and around it goes. The streams run into the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams, there just flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear not satisfied with hearing. And the idea is this, what are you chasing after? Are you chasing after a better part of your career? Are you chasing after all of those things that are fancy to us? A new car, more friendship, more love from other people. Oh, if I could just feel more loved. And the smartest man of all time said none of it matters. Because what we're chasing after is the wrong thing. Chuck Swindoll says that Ecclesiastes shows us a man who lived through this process and came out the other side a wiser with a wiser and more seasoned perspective because Solomon saw so much 
that it really, I mean, he chased everything. He had so many wives. He had all the riches that anything could be, much like some of our superstars, athletes, or our movie stars, or famous singers. They, they have the fame and the fortune, and yet some of them end up still committing suicide. Why is that? Because so much of those things are vanity. So not important. It's not the wisdom that we need. Because life is destined, this is still Chuck Swindoll, life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from our recognition of God's intervention. If we're not aware of God intervening in our lives and desperately seeking that, life is going to be so unsatisfying. I think many of us have seen that. I've chased after things in the past. I want honor. I want respect. And you get it for a small part. But until I really just resign myself to be connected to God, I'm just not satisfied. So are you asking God to regularly intervene in your life? I know I'm not. I want that to change this year. I want this year to be a year where I say, God, come down and meet me here. In the good, in the bad, in everything. I want to walk with you. Um, I had the privilege of baptizing a few of my kids, and that's one of the questions that we ask during baptism. Is Are you willing to walk with God all the days of your life? Beautiful. So exciting. You see, when we were driving to the airport, all I could do was ask for wisdom from God. I had been, been preparing this. This message was prepared several weeks ago. And it was just like, all right, God, like, you really, you gave me the tool, and I was grateful for it. But there's part of me that wanted to shake my fist at him and say, I don't want to go through this trial. But that was just the immaturity. All we could ask for wisdom. We talked to Mark. We talked to, past, the, to the doctors. We, we reached out because we were at our wits end. I didn't know enough about it. But when I reached out, God gave us that wisdom. He showed us the signs that we needed. And we were able to make a better decision because my heart was like, go. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to send my daughter, which is so foolish. Like she could have ended up in the hospital. But there's, and it's okay to have this faith, and that's where Jesus wants us to know. Like, it's okay to be wrestling with this. Because there's part of me that wanted to send her and trust. There's a good chance she may have been okay. But who knows? I feel like we made the decision because we reached out. So what does Jesus tell us about wisdom? Where do we see Jesus in wisdom? Where we can trust him through this? Colossians 2, 2 through 3. Kind of a curveball. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, there's mystery with God. The mystery is Christ, it says. In whom all hidden are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we're not willing to connect with Christ, to be close to him, we won't be able to be close to wisdom and knowledge. That's the key. Can we move towards connection with God, to be near with Christ? Christ the mystery is where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are met. I want more of that. So our third is trusting God through humility. See that in the notes there. This is verses 9 through 11 is this area. It talks about let the lowly brother boast in exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower and it'll pass away, the sun comes up and it withers. So 
if we're going to look at humility, I wanted to look at the backside, which is pride. And I stole, not stole, it's on the internet, so you're allowed to use it. John Piper wrote a great article around pride. Um, this is old school Piper. But he just had a list of all the different things and the reasons why God, different verses why God hates pride. Um, so a few of them out of Proverbs. There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And the very first one listed is haughty eyes is what it says. Someone who's looking down on others or thinking more, more important that they are themselves. We see it in Psalm. David is speaking for the Lord. He's speaking as if the Lord is speaking. It says, the man of haughty looks, an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God will not endure a prideful heart. And again in Proverbs, everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Whew, so I had to look, Lord, where? Where am I prideful? And it's, it's overwhelming. The number of areas where I think that I can do it on my own. Or I think I'm more important than I am. Or I think that I can get through trials on my own. Um, we sang about it in, in the song. The second song, I don't know if you guys know, um, that we sang today, our Dominican Republic mission trip team learned that song in Spanish. And then they sang it for the church down there today. So they've been working for months now trying to learn this song. And they were able to sing it. And it's... Um, who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. So they learned that song, and it was just so beautiful. But one of the lines in there, David in Psalms is writing, and he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you'll visit him. The king of the world is mindful of you this morning. Let that sink in. The king of the universe wants relationship with you. It's true. So humbling. It puts us in our place to remember, ah, it's not about me, it's about you, Jesus. And if God hates pride, what does he love? God loves the heart that boasts in the Lord. If we're going to be proud about something, let's be proud about what God has done in our lives. Not the things that I've accomplished here on earth. I don't want to be proud about that. I want to be proud about those things that God has done for me, through me, through this church. Let's be proud about that. He loves a heart that gives credit to him for what he alone can do. Apart from God, we can do nothing. But with God, we can do everything. And he loves a heart that relies on his power so I just wrote, let's take pride in the proper place, more of him and less of me, because in my weakness, he is strong. And where do we see Jesus with humility? Well, just read some of the Gospels and you'll see it just about on every page. The verse that really came to me is Paul writing in Philippians, reminding the Philippian people what Christ had done for them. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He created everything, including man, and chose to insert himself into a human body, the very thing that he created. That to me is humility. And then being found in the human form, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God was highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is Jesus the Lord of your life today? Stop and pause for a minute. We're going to take communion later, so this is something you can be thinking about through that time. What are the areas where you are on the throne rather than Jesus? What are those areas that it's hard to give it over to him and say, Lord, be in charge of my finances? Lord, be in charge of my marriage, of my work, of my family. Because I know for me, there's lots of areas where I pull back and I want to hold on to it. And there's this struggle. There's times I want to give it up, then I want to pull it back. Are we humble enough, looking at this section where we need to trust God through humility, are we humble enough to declare our dependence on him? God, I need you. I need you to walk me through this trial. I need you to walk with Rebecca through this new normal. This is our new normal, and I need you to be here with us. Do I have the humility to ask for help? Next up, trusting God through temptation. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Who wants the crown of life? I want to be with God forever. You see, in here it talks about how our human desires only lead to death. How many of us have some little sins in our life that have kind of crept in? Proverbs or Song of Solomon calls them little foxes. Oh, there's these little sins, right? Well, that's not too bad of a sin. So we kind of let it be there. Maybe it's telling a little white lie or being a little lazier than I know I should be. There's these little areas where we kind of like, no, those are death is what this says. The human desire, those things that we want. When I want to sit around and be lazy instead of stepping up and helping out around my house, like that's leading me to death. I need to remember this. And some temptations are big and small. So as we look at temptation, sometimes it's not just the big ones. Um, some of the big ones throughout Scripture, you've got David and Bathsheba. David went out of his way to send Bathsheba's husband to the front lines in the army knowing that he would die. So he had a man killed so that he could then, in his right conscience, marry her because he was lusting after her. This is a man after God's heart. We're not justifying what David did. We're showing the humanness of David. And realizing that temptation can be very big. That's a very big temptation. Other ones, as I was saying, I thought through like Peter. And Jesus dies, and Peter's tempted to deny that he knows his best friend three times. It's a little bit smaller of one because I, in, I justified. I think, well, I, I probably would have been somewhat similar to Peter. I don't know if I would have known what David did. Like, that's like, I'm not going to go that far. Would I be more like Peter, where I would say, man, I don't know. And I know I've done that. There's times where I have not as actively said, yeah, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. I am no different than him there. So you look at any of the characters of the Bible, all of them were tempted at different points, right? Because they were human, and temptations are going to come. The second part of this section that I thought was really interesting is, He's saying, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the question that I was thinking as I was studying this was, sometimes I want to blame someone else when I'm feeling temptation. And this is saying, well, no, temptation really comes when it's my desires. The things that I want is where that temptation is going to come. And I just saw this kind of, but sometimes I know the enemy came to tempt Jesus. So where do I put that blame? Where do I say, it's your fault that I'm being tempted, right? I wanted to like be able to say that, be practical. And the reality is, is that it doesn't matter. As I was reading, and Billy Graham has a great quote, and that's where I got it. He just said, it doesn't matter where you're being tempted from. And here's why. He says, this is one of the reasons why we need Christ. Only he can forgive us when we sin, and only he can give us the strength by his Holy Spirit to resist temptation. We don't have the strength in our own to live the way we should, and when we try to fight the devil on our own, we will fail. But Christ is stronger than Satan. And the Bible reminds us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So don't get caught up in this game of, well, that was my fault that I was tempted, or this was the enemy, or who cares? The temptation's there, right? So let's move beyond this idea of this intellectual battle that maybe it's only me that's had, but wanting to blame where this temptation's coming from and instead realize that it's mainly from our desires. There may be times that the enemy does come and, and tempts us, but it doesn't matter because what, what is important is that I'm relying on Jesus to A, help me when the temptation comes and B, to be the, the finisher if I succumb. Like he is taking care of your sin when you fall to the temptation. So where do we see Jesus? Jesus in temptation, this one was easy to find. Um, lots of different places, but there's a specific one. Right after he um, had been in the wilderness for 40 days, he was fasting, he had gone away. It says, this is in Matthew 4, Satan comes and he tempts him. He tempts him in three ways. And I found this, I liked it, because it felt really practical. Um, there was, someone went through and they had kind of categorized the three different ways that Jesus was tempted. Because I think we can then look and see that that's a common strategy that we're going to fall to ourselves because we're human, but the enemy may also want to do it there. The first was a physical temptation. It was to do what felt right in the moment. And that was with food. So the enemy came and said, turn this rock into stone. You're hungry. He'd not eaten for 40 days. Like, you're hungry, right? So scripture says, like, you have the power of God inside. Just change, like, change this rock into food. Do what feels comfortable. That's a huge temptation for me. Ease. Do what's easy. I just want to do that. So the first was the food. And what did Jesus respond with? Man does not live on bread alone. He brings scripture back into it. The interesting part in all of these is that Satan actually used scripture as well. So each time he tempted God, he used scripture as part of the temptation, he pulled that in and said to do it. The second one was an emotional temptation. And this is really a questioning of God's love. Another one that hit really hard for me. So he took him up to a high point and he said, Scripture says that like, if you were to jump off this cliff, that, that angels will come and rescue you. And what are those angels? They're God's messengers coming to save you. And he's really saying do you think that God really loves you enough to save you? 
do you think that God really loves you is the temptation here. How many of you ever felt that? Unaware that maybe God doesn't love me. There's times in life where it's like, ah, I don't know. Let's be aware of that temptation. Does he really love you? The third was a, was a control temptation. Well, there's probably a lot of controllers in here. It was the idea of taking over the throne. He took him to the high, high mountain and looked over everything. And Satan said, I'll give you all of this. It'll all be under your control. You'll have the power. Jesus brought scripture back and said, no, I'm to worship God alone. So use that scripture, but it's that power. How many of us want at times just to feel like you're in control of something, anything? With kids, you don't ever get it, but I just want to be in control. Those were the temptations. So let's look at those themes as you're looking at your life and realize that those are some of them. So what are the, the there's five quick things when we can look at temptation. No one's exempt from temptation. We're all going to feel temptation at different points. It's not the same as sin. Just because you're tempted with something doesn't mean you've sinned. Um, we, re we respond to temptation with God's word. The more we're closer to God's word and we can pull it back out and say, no, this is really truth. You're twisting truth and bringing it to me, but this is really truth. Man is to not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Father. Resist the devil. We can resist temptation. We're commanded to. So some of that's our resolve to say no. It's one of the things I've been practicing is different things have come up, whether it's my apathy towards things. I'll actually just speak that word out at times. If I feel like I'm, I'm wanting to, to, re, like, to pull back instead of engage, I'll say the word no as kind of a resolve of no. And I'll say, God, help me with this. I'm not wanting to do what you've asked me to do. And that's been really helpful for me. And then the last is to pursue the will of God. Are we looking after what God wants? Are we connecting with him? And the last part of this, our fifth one, is trusting God through blessing. This one is extremely hard for me to do. I, it's hard for me to accept love and help from others because that's what I like to do. I like to be the one who gives love and helps people move and brings meals. And I like to do all of that, and it's really hard for me to do it. So as I was reading through this last part, it was kind of this conviction of, oh, wow, I've got to work through this too. So he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is 16 through 18. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. How many times in my life do I want to believe that the good things that I have in my life or because of the hard work and effort that I've put into it. And this just defeats all of that. Because that's such a prideful stance to think that, oh, it's because of, look at what I've done, kind of beat your chest, like, yeah. No, that's not what it's about. Every good gift that we have comes from the Father. You guys seen the, I'm kind of annoyed with it, but have you seen the hashtag blessed on all the social media stuff, people put that, like all the different things, like got a new car, hashtag blessed, like all these different things. And so often we're looking at the blessings wrong. If only I had that new job, then I would be blessed. And we forget all the things that Christ has already done for us. So I'm going to read you a poem. It's actually a song, but I'm going to call it a poem because I'm not going to sing it to you. So if we call it a poem, then it's better. Uh, famous song, but it really helps put in perspective 
where we can find these blessings. How do we trust God through blessings? Sometimes we've got to look for them in the places that we don't expect. And it says this, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, and protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise. There's been a lot of tears this week. There's been a lot of healing and a lot of ability to reach out. My daughter, Rebecca, has been amazing. It's been so fascinating to watch, and I believe it's because of all the prayers of all of you. Brian talked a little bit about loving well last week. Some of the comments that I've heard, I was not able to be in there. I was teaching, but Guys, some of my best blessings are all of you. The number of people who have reached out and prayed for us and brought us meals, come over to our house and cooked us dinner. That's what church is. Let's do that for each other. The different home groups that you're in, that's your group. That's your group to practice this. To be able to be Jesus to them. And that's what we've seen. The social worker, so... Part of this week, you do several trainings. You learn kind of what is diabetes, what are carbohydrates, what are all sorts of stuff. But one of the parts of it, I'm really blessed. <laughs> That's funny. I'm really amazed at how well they did for us. But one of the meetings, we had an hour-long meeting, 45 minutes, with a social worker who came in and just said, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are your emotions? They asked Rebecca what, they thought of, what she thought about needles and every time we went to put the needle in, because we've got to give her the shot, what does that feel inside for you? And it was just this like healthcare and well-being assessment where we were trying to figure out, like, how are you doing? And at the end of it, she was like, you guys seem really to be doing okay. And we just pointed her back to Jesus. We just said we've been in his arms all week long. We have a community around us that's come alongside us. And she was fairly shocked. Because most people, when this happens to them, it just it wrecks them. And sometimes it can be months of grieving. And, and we didn't have that. And it's not because of us. It's because of you guys. It's because Jesus was right there. So here's what Jesus said about trusting him through the blessing. If you want to be someone who really is blessed, he gave us a list, and it's in Matthew. You guys can come up. So he gave us this list, and they're called the Beatitudes. So if you've ever wondered, like, why don't I have the blessed life? Why don't I ever feel that way? Maybe study this list, and it can help us. The first is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you want to walk in blessing, do these things. Be merciful. Be merciful to that boss who's a complete jerk. Be merciful to your spouse when they're having a bad day. So as we look at this, I created this great acronym for you guys. It's SWHTB, which you'll have no way of remembering. But it's how do we trust God in our steadfastness? How do we trust God in our wisdom? How do we trust God in our humility? How do we trust Him through temptation? And how do we trust Him in our blessing? Alicia and I were both joking with Scott this week. After all this happened, I said, because like I said, this, this has been written for a while now. And I just said the next title when I preach is going to be something like, How do I trust God? when he gives you millions of dollars here on earth. <laughs> because I want to learn what that's like and see, see how I can trust God through it. Because <laughs> it has been a trial-filled week. And that's, my heart is for us to know that. I've asked them to play a song for you. If you know it, I don't mind if you sing along. Um, but it's kind of just a reflection song. And it's really a song as I was preparing this, okay, God, like, what has helped me over the, over the years? I'm a song guy. I like listening to songs. So sit and reflect on this. We're going to move into communion later. So if something's coming up for you that you need to repent of or something that you need to deal with, be aware of that. So feel free to sing along, but also feel free just to sit and listen to the words of this because it's really a song around how do we trust God when things don't go our way.